Good morning, Lakeshore. It is great to see all of you here today. We welcome you. We welcome you at our Smyrna campus. We're glad that you're with us today. Anyone that's joining us online, welcome. We're so glad you connected with us online today. Uh, we are happy to uh, share with you a series that we're in called Three Days That Changed the world. Of course, it centers around Easter and uh, the three days that are talked about in a passage that serves as the core for this series is found in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Okay, so he says, the gospel's good news. You've got to hold on to it. And I want to share with you again what I consider the most important things. Here, here they are, okay? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Last week, we looked at Christ dying on the cross, and today we're going to focus on that next part that he says is most important. He, he died on the cross, and he was buried. So today, we're focusing on that event of the burial of Jesus. Every Easter, I'm reminded of that story of a guy who got home from work, and he found that his dog was waiting on him at the door with something in his mouth, and as he looked more closely, he saw that it was the neighbor's pet rabbit. And he saw it was badly mangled and dirty and all messed up, and he knew it was dead. So he, he got the rabbit, and he thought, oh, no, I'm new in the neighborhood, and I don't want my neighbors to be upset with me about this. Uh, so he took the rabbit inside, washed it off really good, blew dry. Uh, he took the blow dryer, used it to fluff out his hair again as he blew him dry, and he saw that the neighbors weren't home yet, so he snuck into their backyard where the cage was and put the rabbit back in the cage and propped him up in there. His hope was that the neighbors would not realize what had happened, and they would think maybe he just died of natural causes. And a couple of days went by, and he thought he'd gotten by with it until he got home uh, one day that next week, and uh, the neighbor was out and, and spoke to him, said, hello, how are you doing? He says, well, I'm not doing all that good. You know, our our pet rabbit died a few days ago. And he stumbled around a little bit and said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. What happened? And the neighbor said, well, this is kind of strange. We found him dead in his cage one day. But the weird thing is that the day after we buried him, someone had dug him up, gave him a bath, and put him back into the cage. <laughs> There's some really sick people out there. When you bury someone or something, you expect it to stay there, don't you? you? You expect that that's it. But today we're going to focus on the fact that they buried Jesus when he died on that cross. Let's pick up in Luke's account, Luke 23, beginning with verse 50. And I want to focus especially on one person in this account of his burial. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. Okay, let's look at this. Now, there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. 
So, so he identifies them right away. This Joseph was a member of the council, uh, meaning the, the, the council of the uh, teachers of the law and the council of the Jewish uh, religious leaders that had made the decision to have Jesus put to death. Now, he's a member of that council, but he had not gone along with, he didn't agree with that decision to have Jesus executed. Okay? He came from the Judean town of Arimathea. And he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now that tells us something about the timing of the burial of Jesus right away. Uh, the preparation day was preparation for the Passover, and it would begin at 6 o'clock that evening, uh, the celebration of the Passover. So Jesus had to be taken down and put in that, prepared and put in the grave before 6 o'clock. That was Jewish law. That's what needed to happen here. So, so Joseph is realizing the time's uh, getting close. It needs to be taken care of for him to have a proper burial. So he rushes to Pilate to get the body to make sure this is taken care of the way it needed to be. Okay? It says in verse 55, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee, followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath, which began at 6, remember, uh, in obedience to the commandment. So they didn't do anything else to the body after Joseph had prepared it and, and got it into the grave there, into the tomb uh, that evening before 6 o'clock. There are several things about this account and, and the mention of the burial that I think are really important. Uh, I've often read that passage in 1 Corinthians that we started with uh, about how it said that he died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. And I thought, well, of course he was buried. What else do you do with a dead body, right? You, you don't leave it out there. In fact, any bodies that were left on the cross out there that no family claimed when they crucified people, they had this ditch uh, near outside the gates, outside the walls of Jerusalem that was referred to, we get the word hell from it, as Gehenna. And it was like uh, the garbage pit of their day where they kept the fires burning and any trash that was not disposed of any other way would be thrown into there and burned up there in that ditch. And any bodies that were left on crosses that were not claimed would be just thrown off into that ditch of hell and burned there. And scavenger birds would come and eat on the bodies and what wasn't burned up would be eaten by those birds. So for someone to have a proper burial, they wouldn't be left on that cross. They would be taken and put into a proper grave. And Joseph wanted to honor Jesus that way. And so he gets the body and he takes it down so that it can be buried. And there, the first thing I want you to see about this is how important it is. I, I thought, well, why in particular does he say he was buried? And then I remembered it's, it's important to verify certain things for those who are going to want to know the facts, right? I mean, some of us are more easily convinced by faith to trust God because we've had good experiences with God and we've had good experiences with the church maybe growing up and it's easier for us to accept the teachings of Scripture and the Word. And so we don't require maybe so many uh, evidences that we can look at to develop our faith and our trust in God. But it's still good for us to have it too, right? Even if you've, if you've been brought up that way. 
but especially for the doubters, for the critics, for those who are skeptical of whether or not they could trust God and God's Word. It helps to have some facts, some information beyond just believe because the Bible says so. Some things that could be verified, some things that could be checked out, some things supporting evidence upon which to base your faith. Because faith in God is not expected to be blind faith. It's based on evidence and testimony. So, so in Scripture, God made sure He recorded for us and preserved for us Evidence and testimony upon which we can base our faith. And one of those areas of evidence was, well, did Jesus really die on the cross, right? If he, if he didn't, then, then the resurrection is, is a falsehood. But if he really died, and, and they really did see him alive again, then that's, that sets him apart from every other teacher that's ever lived. And so one more step in that process of giving us the evidence and the testimony is the eyewitness evidence and testimony of his actual death. And the burial is one more step in verifying that Jesus was actually dead. He was killed on that cross. He died there. Now, it validates his death in a couple of ways. One is, remember in Romans 6.23, Paul tells us the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, if, if the wages of sin is death and Jesus is taking our sin upon himself on the cross, then what would the payment be required? What payment would be required? Death. Jesus would have to die to make payment for sin. And, and if he had not been buried, there could have been all kinds of rumors going around that, that they somehow did something else with his body and, and he, he didn't actually die. And, uh, and those theories still persist, even though we have evidence to the contrary uh, that he didn't actually die on the cross. But, but the evidence upon evidence upon evidence is overwhelming that Jesus actually did die there. Let's look at John's account, John's Gospel, chapter 19, beginning with verse 31. John also says it was the day of preparation, meaning preparation for the Passover, okay? And the next day was to be a special Sabbath. The Passover Sabbath was a special Sabbath for the Jewish people. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Now, this is a specific thing that is mentioned for a specific reason. You see, most people who are crucified died of a combination of things. Blood loss, uh, dehydration. Uh, they almost all were flogged before they were put on the cross, which means they, they, they had a lot of blood loss before they were ever nailed to the cross, right? A lot of dehydration had already taken place, losing the bodily fluids before you're ever put up there, okay? But then the other excruciating thing about hanging on the cross was your, your weight is bearing down on the nails and the only way to breathe is to push up to get a breath using your legs and your feet to get that next breath. And so they knew that if they needed to speed up somebody's death on the cross, if they broke their legs, then they couldn't push up again to get another breath, then they would, they would suffocate if they were not already dead. And so the Jewish leaders said, we don't want 
Jewish bodies left on the cross for the celebration of the Passover. Uh, they, they, the Passover was a huge deal for them. They wanted everything to be just right. They didn't want all these guests coming into town with these people hanging on crosses out there, their bodies rotting and falling off out there. They didn't want uh, their guests to see that. So they said, get those bodies down off the crosses. But they wanted to be sure they were dead before they took them down. That was the punishment they were supposed to receive was death by crucifixion. So they, they go to verse 32. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. So they, they started with one. Uh, they broke his legs to make sure he was dead. They came to the other one. They broke his legs. They wanted to be sure he was dead. But it says when they came to Jesus and found that he was what? Already dead, they did not break his legs. Now, if we just stopped there, we might say, well, they missed it. Right? He looked like he was dead. I mean, have you ever walked in on somebody and thought they might be dead because they weren't moving? Yeah, you put a, you've seen the old thing where you put a, a mirror under their nose to see if you get any breath on the mirror, you know? Uh, especially old people. When I get still too long, I watch my family, okay? Uh, <laughs> If I see them getting out a little mirror or something, I know they're checking, right, to see. Uh, I got news for them. There is no inheritance, so don't worry about it. But uh, <laughs> We spent that a long time ago. Uh, so they're thinking, well, maybe these soldiers just missed it. But here's what you have to understand. The, the, the soldiers that were assigned to do crucifixions, that was their job. Uh, that was part of their assignment in the Roman military, which was the best military force on planet Earth at that time, by far. And the punishment for failing in your duties could be up to death for you if you didn't do your job. Do you think they would have made sure this guy was dead before they took him off that cross? Do you think they'd done this before? Absolutely. This was a, 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 an organization uh, that had done this many times, and they, they knew what they were doing. As awful as it was, it was very much something they had practiced and done more than once, many, many times. They knew what they were doing. They knew how to kill people well by crucifixion. They came to Jesus. They saw that he was already dead. But they didn't stop there. Notice verse 34. John is writing this. He's an eyewitness to it. He said, instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of what? Blood and water. Now, most medical people will tell you that that shows that the sac around the heart had already ruptured because of the mixture of the blood and the water when they pierced his side, which means he was dead. And that's why the soldiers did it. They had done this often enough to know what to look for, what to see to verify death. And John, who had been the closest of the disciples to Jesus, was right there looking at this. He saw the soldier pierce his side, and he saw the flow of the blood and the water. It says, the man... 
who saw it, verse 35, speaking of himself, the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies. Why? So that you also may believe. Why did John record this? Because he wanted us to have evidence upon which to base our faith. It's important to know that Jesus was actually dead. Otherwise, there's no resurrection. If there is no resurrection, there's no hope. There's no reason for us to put Jesus above any other teacher. So there has to be a death before there can be a resurrection. And John is saying, look, I am an eyewitness to this. Here's what you have to know about John. He's risking his life to give this testimony. Now, I, I, I don't mind this theory some people have about the testimony of some people being false, and you know, and, and if it was false, then they usually are convinced to, to give up the truth somewhere along the way if they're under enough pressure. All the disciples who testified to the resurrection of Jesus ended up being persecuted for their testimony, and not one of them changed their story. John said, I saw this. I know it to be a fact, and I'm sharing it with you so you can have the evidence you need for your faith. So that you don't have to have just blind faith. You have evidence upon which to base your faith. But he says in verse 36, These things happen so that what? The scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. That was a prophecy hundreds of years before Jesus was crucified. That when the Messiah came and in his death, not one of his bones would be broken. You see, normally they would have broken the legs like he did with the other two, right? But not with Jesus. That wasn't just coincidence. That's God giving us one more specific evidence from prophecy that this is the Messiah, the Son of God on that cross. Because not one of his bones will be broken. Verse 37, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have what? Pierced. You see, they didn't always pierce the side of somebody that was crucified, but they did with Jesus to show that he was dead. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, the verses we looked at? According to the scriptures, he says, Paul says. And here John is connecting these events with actual scriptures that we have recorded in, in scripture in the Old Testament where every detail is being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. You see, the death and burial of Jesus verifies for us the truth of God's word that we can trust him, that we can count on him. It says, verse 38, later, Joseph of Arimathea, right, this is John's account, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. You've probably heard of him in the scripture. Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, do you remember what they brought to Mary and Joseph when Jesus was born? Gold and frankincense and what? Myrrh. You see, myrrh was a spice of perfume that was used for burial. You think, what an odd gift to bring for the birth of a baby. Do you think God was looking ahead, speaking prophetically through that gift of what was going to happen to that baby? that myrrh would be given to him at his birth. It says it was about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it 
with the spices and strips of linen. It's going to be hard to do if a person's not dead. They wrapped them completely, anointed it all, washed it, anointed it with these spices and the perfumes, and wrapped it in linen that had been soaked in these perfumes. This was to keep the odor down for the body when they put it in there. Okay, They didn't have as good a ways of preserving bodies uh, in that culture as we do now, as some other cultures did. But in that culture, one way they did it was the perfumes and the spices just to keep the odor down as the body rotted and decayed there. Okay. They took it, wrapped it, spices, strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, in spite of this overwhelming testimony that Jesus was dead, there are still critics who say he didn't really die. That he was in a coma. It was a very deep coma and that somehow the disciples were able to take him and, and revive him and later on and make it look like he had come back from the dead. Uh, J. Vernon McGee, who's a Bible scholar uh, years ago, received a letter from a woman that said this. Mr. McGee, our preacher said that on Easter, Jesus just swooned on the cross and he didn't really die and that the disciples helped him get back to a healthy state. What do you think about that? And J. Vernon McGee wrote back and said, Dear sister, beat your preacher with a heavy whip 39 times. Nail him to a cross. Hang him in the sun for six hours. Run a spear through his side. Place him in an airless tomb for three days. And then let me know what happens. Jesus died on that cross. That's why they prepared his body and buried him in that tomb. Well, it not only proves and verifies his death. The second thing we need to see here is how it proves God's faithfulness that this happened. Last week we looked at some of this. And I've already mentioned today some of the prophecies that are being fulfilled here. Which show us God is faithful to keep every promise that he makes. In Isaiah 53, 9 it says this about the Messiah. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Several things here specifically recorded for us about Jesus' trial and his death that, that are fulfillments of this prophecy. It says there was no violence or deceit in his mouth. When they put Jesus on trial, what was the conclusion? Really? Can't find anything wrong with this man. They brought him before Pilate, and Pilate said... I find no fault, no guilt in this man. This is an unbiased observer who had to make a decision on what to do with this man. He said, all the evidence I've listened to, I've heard what you've said, I still don't find anything wrong here. I haven't found him guilty of anything. Now, he didn't have the backbone to stand up against the crowd that was calling for his crucifixion. You remember he went and washed his hands and said, I, I'm I'm innocent of this man's blood when he turned them over to me. Well, he knew what they were going to do to him when he did that. But he wanted it to be on record. I didn't find anything wrong. He wasn't guilty of any wrongdoing before he turned them over. Fulfillment of prophecy again. But the prophecy also said he's assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Remember who was hanging beside him on the cross? 
in his death? Two convicted criminals who were guilty of their crimes, the wicked. But what about the rich? When we find out about Joseph of Arimathea, that he was a rich man who took the body and put him in his tomb that had never been used yet. You see, every detail, God has kept every promise. Why do we struggle so much to trust him now? Why is it so hard for us to believe that God keeps his promises? Why do we struggle with being faithful to him and, and obeying him and thinking that he wants what's best for us when he's never lied to us before? Why do we struggle with his teachings just because they're hard, even though, even though we, we, we think we believe in him, and yet when he says, do this, do it this way, and don't do that, we have a hard time deciding to be obedient. It's like we don't believe his truthfulness to us. After all this evidence that he's given us, how much does it take to finally convince us that we can believe and take him at his word? That he keeps his word. Jesus himself, as we saw last week on several occasions, talked about what was going to happen to him during his ministry here. In Matthew 16, it's recorded in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus had said specifically, Here's what's going to happen. The chief priests, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law are going to take me and do what? Kill me, but then I'm going to be raised to life again. Jesus said specifically, here's the way it's going to happen. And it happened exactly as Jesus said. So it, it verifies it verifies beyond any shadow of a doubt. It validates his death and it proves God's faithfulness to us. There's a third thing that it does that I want to really spend a little time on this morning. And that is this, this account of the burial of Jesus tests our discipleship. It tests our discipleship. I want to share two important questions that we have to consider. The first one is this. Am I willing to commit decisively to Jesus? Hearing the story, knowing the story of the death, burial, and resurrection, in view of that, in response to that, am I willing to commit decisively to Jesus? You see, the church has been given the great commission directly from Jesus himself. He said, go and make what? Disciples. The word disciple is not a casual believer. That's not what he's talking about there. He's not talking about people who pray a prayer and let Jesus into their heart and keep living the way they've been living. That's not what he's talking about there. A disciple is a disciplined follower of a teacher and his teachings. You submit to those teachings as having authority over you if you are going to be a disciple of a teacher. And so we've got to decide, in light of the account of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, is he one? Do we believe it? And is he the one then that we're willing to commit to decisively? 
The reason I wanted to focus on Joseph of Arimathea was this. Before this account, Joseph believed Jesus, but he followed him how? Secretly. Here's the problem. His death, burial, and resurrection removes the opportunity to follow him secretly anymore. You have to decide. Is that true or not true? Because if it's true, it sets him apart from every other teacher. If it's true, it demands something of us in light of his teachings. More than just believing the information. So we've got to decide. Joseph decided when he saw Jesus on that cross that it's time to come out of hiding. It's time for me to go public with my belief in Jesus. Now I want you to understand the risk he was taking when he did that. They just crucified Jesus. What do you think their attitude is toward those who want to still believe in him and follow him? Right? You see, the reason he had kept it secret before is because it was risky to follow Jesus. How risky is it now? It's more risky than ever before. And yet Joseph decides, I will go public with my faith in Jesus, even with the risk that I see connected to it now. See, that's the only way he could go get the body. It's the only way he could tend to the body. It's the only way he could put the body in his tomb was to go public and say, I think you did the wrong thing when you put him on this cross. I, I want to give my allegiance to this man. I want to honor this man this way. It calls for a very public, a very decisive act. And nothing has changed since then when it comes to following Jesus. If we're truly going to say that we identify with Jesus, then it demands nothing less than a very public, very decisive commitment on our part that we are going to do that. There is no casual disciple. That's an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. You can't have those two things together. Casual and discipleship. Discipleship is anything but casual. It is a total commitment, a decision that is made to give yourself to the following of that teacher and the teachings of that teacher. We see evidence of that all through Scripture. One of my favorite stories of Jesus' ministry uh, while he was here on the earth in the flesh is in Luke chapter 7. It says in verse 36, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now you have to picture this. In most of their houses, they had an open air type of setting in a courtyard where they would eat their meals. And it would be, uh, the house wouldn't be off on 30 acres somewhere. It was in town and, and there were streets real close by. And people would be walking by and see those people out there in the courtyard eating. And there Jesus is, remember, reclining at the table because they didn't sit up in chairs in that culture the way we do to eat. They would actually recline on pillows around a very low table and eat their meals that way. And here's Jesus out there reclining at the table out in the courtyard of this Pharisee's house. Probably a pretty nice house. Pharisees were usually pretty well to do. It says in verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. 
Uh, people had walked by and they had seen Jesus eating there. So the buzz was going all through town, right? The teacher, Jesus, he's at this guy's house. He's eating. You could, you, I walked by. I saw him out there, right? This lady who was known. <laughs> how would you like for this to be your identify, uh, identifying mark in Scripture? A woman in that town who had what? Lived a sinful life. That's how she was known. She learned Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. A lot of times we read that story and we think, well, that's, you know, that's nice. And if you read the rest of the story, there was a lesson here about, about how valuable the perfume was. And Judas was upset, you know, about how, how it was wasteful to do this and all that. That's, that's not what I want us to focus on. I want us to focus on the decisive act of this sinful woman. She did something that was totally countercultural. She did something that would be looked down on by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. She did something that the general public would have been, I can't believe she did that. A sinful woman like that right there in public going to this teacher that that, that everybody, you know, they were talking about him and who he could be. Would he be the Messiah? And she, this sinful woman, goes right up to him and wipes his feet with her hair and her tears in the perfume. Everybody was upset by it except Jesus. Jesus was perfectly okay with it. You know why? Because that's what he wants from every one of us. You see, you are the sinful woman in the town. I am the sinful man in the town. You know what he wants from us? A very public, decisive act on our part to show that we will follow Jesus. That we love him. And that we're not embarrassed by him. And that we're not afraid to declare allegiance with him. The way Joseph decided he wasn't afraid anymore to declare allegiance with this Jesus. He wants us to be willing to very publicly and boldly declare our allegiance to Jesus. And not to do it in secret. And not to be afraid that others might find out. And not to be afraid that people will ridicule or make fun. But to be very public. Very decisive. And very bold in our decision to identify our lives with the life of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2, after the death, burial, and resurrection, remember Peter preaches the first gospel sermon. Remember Paul said, by this gospel you've been saved? Well, this is the beginning of the preaching of the gospel recorded in Acts chapter 2. And Peter's the one who preaches that sermon. And at the end of that sermon, he says this in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Those two terms are important. They mean something really, really important. Lord means ruler. Messiah means the anointed one, the Savior that God was going to send, right? So he's identifying Jesus as that long-awaited Messiah and the one who would be the ruler over all things. He says, God's made Jesus Lord and Messiah. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That's the key question, isn't it? For everybody. 
If the story of the death, burial, and resurrection is true, then what do we do? The Messiah has come. God has sent the Savior already. What do we do in response to that? We are the sinful woman. We are the sinful man in town. What do we do? How do we publicly declare if we're going to give our allegiance to Jesus? That's what they're asking. Verse 38, Peter replied, here's what you do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. How do you make a public, decisive decision to align yourself with Jesus according to the Scriptures? If you believe, it's by repenting and being baptized into Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And God then offers you that forgiveness through Jesus, and He gives you His Spirit then as a gift to indwell you and empower you to live the life that He's called you to live. In Romans 6, he describes baptism for us this way, beginning verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his what? Death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like this, like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. You want the power of the resurrection? You get it by being united with Christ in His death, buried with Him in baptism, and raised up to new life with Him. That's how you have that power in you over death. But here's the second question. Many of you here, a lot of you here have already done that. So here's the next question. Am I willing to wait patiently? Am I willing to wait patiently on the Lord? When Jesus died on the cross and he was buried, can you imagine? Can you just imagine? We'll talk more about it next week, how hard it was for them to wait on God after that and wonder What's going to happen now? What's going to happen next? It had to be the hardest time of their lives, those that had put their faith in Jesus. You see, just because you get baptized into Christ, it doesn't mean, all right, now everything's good. Everything's going to work out fine. Uh, everything, God's just going to bless me in every way. I'm not going to have any more struggles anymore. anymore. No, uh, in this world, you're going to still have trouble, right? You're still going to have those struggles. Are you willing to wait? faithfully, patiently on the Lord as you walk with Him through the rest of your life? John 14, verse 1, Jesus is talking to His disciples shortly before He goes to the cross, and He says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Do you think we can trust the promises of Jesus? Then are you willing to wait patiently, faithfully, until Jesus comes to take you home to be with him? Can you still honor him, walk as a disciple, obedient to him, as you wait for him to come? And take you home. Friends, today we have a choice to make. 
the burial of Jesus is important for us to know about and understand and believe. If he was really dead, and that's why they buried him, then the resurrection proves beyond any shadow of a doubt that he is both Lord and Messiah. There is no other one. So that calls for a public, decisive choice for everybody to make with what you're going to do with that Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Father, we thank you for the evidence, for the testimony. You don't ask us to just blindly put our trust in your word. You've shown us through the fulfilled prophecies, through, through the eyewitness testimony, through the lives that were totally transformed and changed by the resurrection. You've shown us that we have every reason to put our trust in Jesus. And because we have that evidence, it demands of us a response. A public, decisive response to either accept and follow Him as Lord and Messiah or to reject Him completely. There is no middle ground. Father, I pray that if there's one today who needs to decide that, that they would choose, based upon the evidence and the testimony that you've given, to boldly, decisively, publicly choose today to make Jesus Lord and Messiah of their lives too. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.